Recorded live. Hello, and welcome to Christogenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh. This is William Fink, and it is Saturday, January 21st, 2012. I'm going to present my paper. First, I have to apologize for the delay. I've had sound problems and equipment problems. I brought plenty of equipment. It just doesn't want to work right. I won't be able to run this a live stream outside of the Christagenia on, on over the Christagenia streaming radio tonight because I'm I'm having a problem with this laptop and, and sound patching it through two places at once also. So so if you run out of sound on TalkShoe, I, I, I can't help you tonight, I'm sorry. But the um TalkShoe sound cuts off quite often, right? I'm going to present a paper tonight I wrote a couple of years ago called Hairs of the Covenant. Then I'm going to talk about quite a few other things. And, and um, Matt and I are going to have, Matthew Watt and I, who, who does the board here for me, we're going to have a discussion. And, and um, we're going to take callers if anybody wants to call in. Anybody, of course, who's not one of the frequent trolls that we get. This is a paper I wrote. Um, in May of 2009, entitled The Heirs of the Covenant. Hopefully it will be appropriate for this discussion. Many commentators often construe Paul's statements at Galatians 3, 15, and 16 to mean that there was only a single heir of the covenant of Yahweh our God, and that air they usually tell us, and, and this is what all the mainstream churches sign on to, is Jesus Christ, that he's the only heir of all things. And there's no doubt he is the heir of all things. However, there's a lot more to the covenants of God than that, and they are covenants. They are contractual relationships, and God does not break his covenants, regardless of the treachery of man. If the mainstream church interpretation of Galatians 3, 15, and 16 is true, as if Paul could change the covenants himself, right? Then Paul conflicts with many of his own statements, where we see several times that Paul tells us elsewhere that there is a plurality of heirs to the covenant which God made with Israel, not with himself. For instance, concerning the new covenant, Paul says in Titus 3.7 that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Then again, concerning the new covenant, Paul says in Hebrews 6.17, wherein God willingly more abundantly to show unto the heirs, plural, of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. In other words, there's more than one heir to the covenant. All of the children of Israel are heirs to the covenant. The way the mainstream churches would have it, only Christ is the heir to the covenant, and then anybody who simply Christ regardless of what they think about what Christ said, why he came, what the purpose was outlined in the Old Testament, that they could be um, partakers of the promises given to the children of Israel, 
That is false theology. That is a huge lie. In Hebrews chapter 6, while discussing Yahshua Christ in the New Covenant, Paul illustrates that the heirs of that covenant were selected before the confirmation of the covenant by the sacrifice made by Yahshua Christ. That's what he is saying where he says, wherein God willingly more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. For this reason, he also told the Romans, Romans 15, 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. When you go back and look at the promises made unto the fathers, there's nothing about Gentiles there. There's nothing about non-Israelites there. There's no room for anybody but Israel in any of those promises. Whenever there are such apparent conflicts and statements in the Bible, the reader is either incorrectly understanding the passage in question, usually because it is being taken out of context, or there are translational errors. Something that happens very often in the King James Version, and also in every other version of Scripture translated by men. Even my own, we can all make mistakes. We pray that we make less mistakes than our forebears that we study and build on what they did and correct their errors. Here, Galatians 3.15 and 16 shall be examined, and it shall be seen that any apparent conflicts in Paul's statements are resolved once the context and the translation of the passage are more thoroughly understood. First, the context of the promises found in the New Testament itself must be examined. The making of a New Testament by Yahweh with the children of Israel was a matter of Old Testament prophecy. This is found in Jeremiah chapter 31. And here verses 31 through 36 are cited. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's no room for anybody else there. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No Yahweh, for they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus saith Yahweh, which gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith Yahweh, then the seed, the offspring of Israel, 
also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. That means that the children of Israel are still a nation unless the sun, the moon, and the stars fail. They're not a church, right? From this passage in Jeremiah, we see that the new covenant is made exclusively with the house or family of Israel and the house or family of Judah, the very Israelites of the old covenant. It is also apparent that as long as there are a sun, moon, and stars, the children of Israel shall always be a nation. That doesn't preclude them from being multiple nations. But we know they exist here, and they are nations, not churches. And that, it is the sins of these very same children of Israel which are to be forgiven. Nobody else is included. Grace, which may have been better translated favor, and which is the way I always translate it, is also a matter of prophecy. And we find in the same chapter of Jeremiah, in verses 1 and 2, where it says, and I quote, At the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Who is he talking about there? Well, Jeremiah is writing long after nearly all of Israel and Judah were carried captive by the Assyrians. They are the people left of the sword. They found grace in the wilderness. They found grace that they were already headed to Europe. They had already trans crossed the Caucasus Mountains and crossed Anatolia and the Bosporus. The Cimmerians were already in Europe. Much, many of the Scythians were already en route. They were the people that found grace in the wilderness, the Germanic nations. The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest after those deportations of Israel and nearly all of Judah, everybody except the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who were later taken by the Babylonians. Here it is evident that Yahweh is the God of Israel even after they were cast off, and that those cast-off Israelites would be the ones to find grace with Yahweh. You won't find grace for any other races in the Old Testament anywhere. Only the children of Israel found grace with Yahweh in his new covenant, which he promised to make with them. It can be fully demonstrated from classical history that many of the tribes of the Mediterranean basin, the Greeks, the Romans, the Phoenicians, indeed descended from Old Testament Israelites. Maybe not all of them, but a significant portion of them. These Israelites colonized many areas long before the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of Israel, which began around 741 B.C., almost 800 years before Christ, before the ministry of Christ. 
and ended with the destruction of the temple in 585 B.C. Of the Israelites who were taken away by the Assyrians, Micah the prophet, in Micah chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, And I will make hurt and halted a remnant, and hurt it was cast far off a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. It is this passage to which Matthew 21.43 should be cross-referenced. At Matthew 21.43, Christ tells the Judeans that the, the kingdom would be taken from them and given to a nation bearing its fruit. Micah is writing about the Scythians, cast off by Yahweh, taken away by the Assyrians, retransplanted in the cities of the Medes and diverse other areas of Mesopotamia. And the further they wandered, the stronger a nation they became. There are passages in Isaiah chapter 66 and elsewhere that prove beyond doubt that the Scythians and the Cimmerians are meant by these prophecies when we compare the prophecies to the history. Going back to examine the promises made under the fathers, which Paul mentions in Romans 15:8, we see that Abraham's seed, Abraham's offspring, according to a promise made to him by Yahweh, were to become an innumerable multitude and to grow into many nations with their kings. We see this in Genesis chapters 12, 13, 15, and 17. Yet these promises were not to all of Abraham's seed or offspring. We see that Ishmael was sent away, even though Ishmael was circumcised. And Ishmael believed. He was nevertheless sent away. Genesis chapter 17, verses 25 and 26. As Genesis chapter 17 and 21 both illustrate, Ishmael was not to become an heir. Additionally, the children which Abraham later had with Keturah, they were also sent away since neither were they to become heirs of the covenants which Yahweh had with Abraham. They were sent away. Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 through 6 explains it. The promises of Yahweh would fall to Isaac exclusively, which is fully evident in Genesis chapters 18, 21, and 26. Of Isaac's descendants, Jacob and Esau, Esau sold his birthright, and by it, his share of the promises. Yet Esau's selling of his birthright may be viewed as a mere formality. He actually lost it by going against the desires of both Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father, and Rebekah, his mother, by marrying accursed Canaanite women. Esau saw that the children of Canaan, as it's explained in Genesis chapter 27, had troubled his father. 
Rebecca expressed the fact that her heart was troubled, that her life would be nothing if Jacob did what Esau did and married one of the daughters of the Hittites. And because Esau forfeited his birthright, the promises given to Abraham were passed down exclusively to Jacob Israel. By these promises and other biblical prophecies, we see that Jacob's offspring were to become innumerable and were to become nations and companies of nations. We see the promises repeated in that light in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 16, and Genesis chapter 35, verses 9 through 15. While this is a mystery to most people, even in the churches and the halls of academia, this is not the fault of Yahweh God or of the apostles. All of these promises were surely fulfilled in history, and this fulfillment is revealed upon a study of both the classics, the Bible, and archaeology. Many of the Greek tribes, namely the Dorians and Danans, along with the Trojans and those who sprung from them, such as the Romans, and the Illyrians had descended from Israelites dispersed long before the Assyrian invasions. Yet from the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions and deportations of Israel are descended the Cimmerians, the Scythians, and the Parthians, from whom came all of the Germanic tribes of later history. There were no Germans when Abraham walked the earth, unless they were in Abraham's loins. The word of Yahweh God is sure, and the seed or offspring of Israel did indeed inherit the desolate heritages, as the prophet Isaiah also foretold, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 21 and 22. Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, Yahweh, will hasten it in his time. Furthermore, the fulfillment of all of this prophecy may be seen where Isaiah says of Israel in Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 5, Sing, O barren that did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, that thou did not travail with child, thou that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith Yahweh. Very important to get your mind around that statement. If you're not an Israelite, if you are not part of that marriage relationship with Yahweh our God, then you must be one of the children of the desolate. There's only two categories here, right? Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. The Israelites didn't disappear. They didn't evaporate in the world. 
Greeks, Parthians, Scythians, Romans, they're all descended from the tribes of Israel. They became the world. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the nations and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. And yes, the children of Israel, with a lot of other prophecies in play, they did overcome the Parthians. Well, well, the Parthians were part of them. They did overcome the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, all the Genesis 10 nations, all the white nations of Genesis chapter 10. By the time of Christ, were ruled over by people who descended from the Israelites. And thy seed shall inherit the nations and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth. When we were a young nation back in 700 BC, and were taken off by the Assyrians, the shame of our youth, and shalt not remember the reproach, the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. And we do not. We only know life in Christ, except that we sure as hell don't appreciate it. For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. Why? Because his people shall inherit the entire earth because he's only the God of Israel. This was fulfilled in history by the dispersed of Israel who ultimately became what we, what we know today is the Celtic and Germanic peoples. Paul quotes from this very passage in Galatians chapter 4 of his epistle. And Paul recognized the fulfillment of the words. Everywhere Paul went, he went to Israelites, real Israelites, not artificial church substitute Israelites. Several decades after the dispersion of Israel, which began to take place following the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of the people from Palestine. A small remnant returned to Judea to rebuild the temple. This remnant was to provide Yahweh with the means by which he would ultimately redeem Israel through his sacrifice as Yahshua Christ. After this sacrifice, the news of which was to be brought to the lost sheep of Israel, and the children of Israel are called lost sheep throughout, Ezekiel chapter 34. So the lost sheep, that term can only apply in the Bible to the children of Israel as prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 34. We can't imagine anybody else to be the lost sheep of the house of Israel unless they're part of those people that Ezekiel was talking about in Ezekiel chapter 34, the children of Israel, period.
after the sacrifice of Yahshua Christ, the news of which was to be brought to the lost sheep of Israel, the city of Jerusalem was to be destroyed. This is prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. The destruction of Jerusalem was necessary because Satan, the adversary, the group collectively, had taken it over, which we see in Ezekiel chapter 35, that Edom saith, these two countries and these two nations shall be mine. Get thee far from hence. The children of Esau talking to the children of Israel. That Esau would possess the ancient lands and come to possess the identity of the children of Israel after they were taken away is spelled out in Ezekiel 35 and 36. It's a matter of prophecy. And Paul attests to the fact that the people of Jerusalem in his time are indeed Satan in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. For this reason, Paul explained to the Romans in chapter 9 that he was only concerned for his kinsmen according to the flesh in Judea. And then he goes on to compare Jacob, the vessels of mercy, and Esau, the vessels of destruction. That's the entire theme of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. The process of Satan taking over Jerusalem began when the Edomites, who had become the enemies of God's people, therefore they are Satan, they are the adversary in that sense alone, the process of Satan taking over Jerusalem began when the Edomites moved into much of the lands of Israel and Judah after the deportations. There are many historical notations, citations that prove that the Edomites moved into these lands. It's very clear in Josephus. And, and we like to cite one passage in Josephus book 13 that shows that the the Maccabees converted by force the Edomites, but there are actually several passages in Josephus that explain this in different diverse places in Palestine. Shortly before 130 BC, after the Edomites had moved up into all the land of Israel and Judah, John Hyrcanus decided to conquer all of the cities of ancient Israel which were inhabited at that time by Edomites and Canaanites and either to convert them to the religion of Judea which was first called Judaism by the Greeks or to let them leave the land or be slain the great numbers of these people readily converted to Judaism and thenceforth were known as Judeans this is described in detail by the historian Josephus, who wrote after 70 AD. He was not a Christian. He had no axe to grind against these people. He considered them his countrymen. It is also summarized by the Greek geographer Strabo, almost 100 years before Josephus wrote. Strabo, writing from a general Greek perspective, says in the 16th book of his geography that the Edomians, who are the Edomites, are Nabataeans, which are an Arab tribe. And we know from the Bible that the Ishmaelites and the Edomites mingled together. 
But owing to a sedition, they were banished from there, joined the Judeans, and shared in the same customs with them. Of course, Strabo is encapsulating 400 years of history from a Greek perspective. Strabo attests in Book 16 of his geography that the Judeans were mixed up with the Edomites. 16.2.2. When the first Herod, whom Josephus, on at least four occasions, attests was an Edomite, through treachery and bribery became the king of Judea, he destroyed the Maccabees. He destroyed the last of the Maccabee high priests, which were, which were actually a family of high priests, who had ruled over Judea for many centuries. Herod destroyed them, and he destroyed all possible rival claimants to the position of king from the Levitical viewpoint, because the Levites were the rulers of the kingdom in the intertestamental period. The high priests were the rulers of the kingdom. From the, and, and, and he also destroyed all of the principal men of Jerusalem. He murdered them all. From that time, Herod used the position of high priest as a political tool. By the time of Christ, the high priest and many of the influential men of the temple and its religious sects were actually Edomites. There are many New Testament statements which reveal this, which become fully evident to those who first understand the history surrounding these events. The children of Israel are the anointed of Yahweh. Yes, Yahshua Christ is the anointed one. The Christ means the anointed. However, he is the head of the body. The body of Christ is Yahshua Christ at the head of the people of Israel. Generally, the children of Israel are the anointed as a collective group. And this is evident throughout the Old Testament in many scriptures. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 Chronicles 16, Psalms. It's in several Psalms. It's in Lamentations. It's in Habakkuk. In the New Testament, this is evident in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and 26, where Paul explains that, Mo, that, that Moses would rather suffer the reproach of the anointed, meaning the children of Israel, rather than enjoy all of the comforts of the Pharaoh's household in Egypt. Moses chose instead to suffer the reproach of the anointed, meaning the sufferings which his Israelite kinsmen were undergoing in Egypt. 1 John 2, verse 27, mentions the anointing that we have received, the anointing that the children of Israel had received. This use of the anointed, referring to the children of Israel, is obfuscated because the translators insist upon translating the word anointed as Christ 
upon every occasion that the word appears. There are clear instances where the word does not refer to Christ, but definitely refers to the body of the children of Israel. In Romans chapter 9, in 1 Timothy chapters 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I have a paper on that written on Christogenia, which proves that with little room to argue, leaving little room to argue, it proves it to any reasonable person. It's called Yahweh's anointed, the children of Israel. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, Paul discusses the faith of Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, Paul explained that the faith of Abraham was that Abraham believed Yahweh when he was promised that his offspring would become many nations. That is defined by Paul as the faith of Abraham. Not as the mainstream Christian churches errantly teach that many nations somehow became Abraham's offspring. That is not what the promise is. That is not what the scripture says. The scripture says, and the promise was, that Abraham's offspring would become many nations. The church teaches it backwards. They inverted the truth. They turned it into a lie. In Romans chapter 9, Paul discounts the Edomites as vessels of destruction since they are not included in the promises and since, as Paul explains in Hebrews, Esau was a profane man and a fornicator. That means he was a race mixer. When we look back in Genesis, we see that Esau had Canaanite wives. He made his children vessels of destruction because he mixed his race. Although these things, these things are not stated explicitly here in the epistle to the Galatians, they are wholly representative of Paul's teachings. If they are wholly representative of Paul's teachings, we know what Paul had in mind when he wrote Galatians chapter 3 by comparing it to his other writings, especially in Romans 9 and Hebrews 11. The Galatians, the Galatians physically actually descended from the ancient Chimerians of the Israelite dispersion. And so in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29, Paul explains the relationship of Israel to the laws given at Mount Sinai. And in chapter 4, we see Paul tells the Galatians in verse 28 that we, brethren, down through Isaac, are children of the promise. He's talking about himself and the Galatians. He then repeats the statements which tell us that the children of Ishmael are excluded from the promises of Yahweh, and he reassuringly says to the Galatians that, we, well, brethren, we are not the children of a servant woman, but of the free, meaning Sarah. Seeing that Paul was teaching the exclusion of both Edomites and Ishmaelites from the covenants and promises of Yahweh our God, and many more biblical passages may be cited to support this, only then can the statements made by Paul in Galatians 3, 15 and 16 be properly interpreted 
in context. First, however, some background in the Greek words of the passage must be given. First, concerning verse 15, Galatians 3.15, the Greek word translated in the King James Version as added, addeth thereto. That Greek word is epidiatasitahi. I know that's a tongue twister. In the present passive or medium third person singular of the verb epidiatasso, it appears only here in the entire New Testament, properly since in Greek verbs of the medium voice, we see indicated that both the recipient and the doer of the action are one and the same. That's why we have a medium voice in Greek to express that. The recipient of the action and the doer of the action are one and the same. So the word may be translated, as it's translated in the Christianity New Testament, to make additions to for oneself. So no man can make additions to the New Testament for himself, is what Paul is talking about in Galatians 3.15. Liddell and Scott in their lexicon define the word as to add an order. But the verb diatasso Liddell and Scott have in the medium voice to arrange things for oneself, to get things arranged. And so the proprietary, the, the propriety of the, new, of the translation to this verse, which will be given here, is readily evident. Secondly, in Galatians 3.16, Galatians 3.16 might be the most abused Greek in history. In Galatians 3.16, Paul contrasts spermati, the dated singular, of the word sperma, which means offspring. It means it's the word we get sperm from. It only comes from one place. Paul contrasts the dative singular, spermati, with the dative plural, spermasin. Thayer says of sperma that the singular is used collectively of the grains or kernel sown. Later, Thayer claims that in this verse we see an exception to that. And Thayer perverts Paul's use of the word and calls it genius. Thayer had some false church doctrines sewn into his Greek definitions. In the context of this and other of Paul's epistles, which I've already explained here, I must read this verse to be a comparison of the several races sprung from Abraham. Jacob Israel being contrasted with Ishmael and with Esau, and even with those of Abraham's seed who came down from Keturah. The word seed, as in English, also in Greek and Hebrew, is a singular noun which is used collectively of many of a single type. The Greek plural of sperma appears in the New Testament only in Matthew 13, 32 and in Mark 4, 31, where diverse types of seed are meant. So therefore, they are seeds because they are different types. This is true in the Old Testament also. For instance, 
in 1 Samuel 8.15. 1 Samuel 8.15 is the only place where the word seed occurs in the plural, where it is used of crops and diverse varieties are implied, where it talks about seeds to mean many different types of seeds. With all of this, I will now quote the version of Galatians 3:15 and 16 from the Christogenian New Testament, translated properly and in the context of the promises of Yahweh God found throughout the Bible and explained as I just have in part here in this, in, in this presentation. I will also quote verses 17 and 18 so it may be seen that Paul indeed teaches that these promises are still, to this day, exclusive to the descendants of the ancient Israelites, the chosen descendants of Abraham. And I quote, Brethren, I speak as befitting a man, even a validated covenant of man, no one sets aside or makes additions to for himself. Now to Abraham, the promises have been spoken, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as many, but as of one, and to your offspring. Which are anointed. Because the word seed is a collective. It's a collective noun used in the singular to describe many of the same type. Now I say this, a validated covenant beforehand by Yahweh, a covenant validated beforehand by Yahweh, the law which arrived after 430 years does not invalidate, meaning that the promise to Abraham is greater than the giving of the law to Israel. by which the promise is left idle. For if from the law the inheritance is no longer from promise, but to Abraham through a promise, Yahweh has given it freely. Paul is explaining to the Galatians that the Edomites and the Ishmaelites and the children of Keturah are excluded from the covenant which is only for the literal, physical, genetic children of Israel. Then he, ex he proceeds to explain their relationship to the law, which only makes sense to those who would be sended from the Israelites. Since scripture attests in many places that only Israel was ever under the law. An example of this testimony is found in Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes, and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Pray, praise ye Yahweh. At Galatians 3.29, the word found in the final clause, which the Greek which the King James Version translates and, and is not found in any Greek manuscript whatsoever, and does not belong in the text. This verse 
Galatians 3.29, must be translated, but if you are Christ's, then of the offspring of Abraham, you are heirs according to the promise. In other words, if you are Christ's, you have to be of the offspring of Abraham, and then you are heirs according to the promise. It's difficult language, but that's what Paul is saying. Being claiming for yourself to be Christ's, you are violating Galatians 3.15. You are making yourself a subject of Galatians 3.15, where Paul says that no man can make additions to the covenant for himself. You can't be Christ because you can't change the covenant of God, which is only made with the seed of Abraham through Jacob Israel. If you're not one of those people, you could never be a part of that covenant. That's just the way it is. That's what Paul is saying here. It is fully evident that if you are not of the offspring of Abraham through Jacob, you have no part in the promises of God. For this reason did Yahshua Christ state that I have not been sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul reaffirms this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, where he says, speaking of Abraham, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Of course, Yahshua Christ could raise up children of Abraham from stones. As John the Baptist told the Pharisees that God could raise children of Abraham from stones, but they would not be Israelites. They would not be heirs of the covenant, and neither would the Edomite Pharisees and Sadducees whom he was addressing, the den of vipers. The beginning of Luke's gospel reflects the entire context of the New Testament. And here I shall read from Luke 167 through 80 from the Christogenian New Testament, where Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, prophecies concerning the infant and the coming redemption of Israel. Verse 67. Then Zechariah, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people and has raised the horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, which is given to us, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. And now you, child, shall be called a prophet of the highest, for you shall go on before the face of Yahweh to prepare his path, for which to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the dismissal of their errors. Through the affectionate mercies of our God, 
by whom dawn visits us from the heights, to shine upon those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and was strengthened in spirit, and was in the wilderness until the day of his manifestation to Israel. It is absolutely clear, if the Bible were read in context, and not as the Judeo-Christians do, one passage at a time, then in Galatians 3, 15 and 16, Paul is informing us that the only group of the descendants of Abraham who had expectations in the promises and the covenants of Yahweh are those who were the descendants of Jacob Israel, and that the others, the descendants of Esau and Ishmael, were and are still today excluded. Today, the Edomites and the descendants of Ishmael are found for the most part amongst the Jews and the Arabs, but they are not limited to those two groups. The descendants of Jacob Israel are found in the white Christian nations of Europe, and they are the heirs of the covenant. Nobody else could ever be included in that covenant. I want to read something, something I posted in the Christagenia forum. I'm just going to paraphrase it because I'm not going to mention any of my, um, well, well, I'm going to try not to mention any of my detractors, which are a few, just a few, but they have big mouths, and they just don't get it. I've recently been called a liar because I believe the Bible. Imagine that. I've been called a liar by a, by a clown who professes to be a Christian identity pastor simply because I believe the Bible. I'm going to read Isaiah 45:25. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. In the Septuagint it says, in Yahweh shall all the seed, all the seed of the sons of Israel be justified, and they shall glory. Who does that exclude? And what Israelite can point to any other child of Israel, no matter what he's done or who he is, and say, you're excluded? Well, there are certain clowns that want to throw their Israelite brethren, or at least they claim to be Israelites, into the lake of fire. That's pretty repulsive. Isaiah 45, 25 wrote, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. I would ask these clowns, which part of all don't they understand? Paul in Romans chapter 11 wrote, and so all the seed of Israel shall be saved. All Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Many Israelites have done a lot of awfully wicked deeds. We don't know why. Yahweh knows why. 
We can't judge the hearts of men. Yahweh, our God, can judge the hearts of men. We don't know what makes certain men do certain crazy things. We think we know. The influence of Satan is great in this world. But we really don't know what makes certain men do certain things. Yahweh knows. And he is our only judge. And he says that all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And certain clowns in Christianity say, oh, no, there are Israelites going into the lake of fire. Well, evidently not, because all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And that doesn't exclude anybody. And I would say again, which part of all don't you understand? And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. You can't run to some other part of the Bible to prove those passages are wrong. You can't misinterpret purposely something and bend it into your agenda to prove that those two, those two passages are wrong. There's no reason to doubt the veracity of those two passages from the manuscripts. There are other passages that support them. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 7. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all of their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. There are many promises of the cleansing of sin, the sins of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. None of those promises exclude any Israelite, period. All Israel shall be saved. Out of Zion shall come the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Where are the exceptions? Oh, but that guy did this. Well, Yahweh is his judge, and Yahweh said that all Israel shall be saved. It absolutely amazes me that the people who want to throw Israelites into the lake of fire, they want to let niggers into the kingdom of heaven. Imagine that. And they call themselves Christian identity. They're not Christian identity. Christian identity properly is the proper identification of the recipients of the covenants of God, along with the identification of the enemies of God. Identifying the people of the Old Testament properly from history and from scripture and from archaeology, that is Christian identity. That is how it started 200 years ago. All of those promises that the children of Israel have to have all of their sins cleansed, and there are many, 
It's in Ezekiel, it's in Jeremiah, it's in Isaiah. There are many, and there are no exceptions. It doesn't say anywhere, I will cleanse all their sins except the murderer. Or I will cleanse all their sins except the idiot that got caught diddling some kid. Yes, that's absolutely repulsive. That's the worst behavior in the world. We have no room for anybody who harms a child. Paul says that some of you were fornicators and some of you were adulterers, but you have cleansed yourselves. Every child of Israel will have that opportunity to turn to Christ. And all Israel shall be saved. Even the people from before the flood, as Peter explains in his second epistle in chapter 3, I think it is, Peter explains fully that the people before the, before the flood, the worst people in history, race mixers, fornicators, everything else, every other foul thing which they engaged in, they had the opportunity to hear the gospel and the prisoners were freed from hell. Well, there is no more hell for the children of Israel in Christ. Which part of all don't you understand? Well, this fool, and he is a fool, he tried to say that John chapter 15 disproves the fact that all Israel shall be saved. Well, like I said, you can't go to one verse in the Bible and say it disproves another verse. Paul wasn't a liar. Isaiah wasn't a liar. Isaiah didn't speak a lie when he wrote Isaiah 45, 25. Basically, denying that and trying to use half the Bible to refute the other half, you label half the Bible half the biblical writers as liars. That's what you're saying. The word of God does not change. The word of God is forever. The promises are forever. They are immutable, as Paul explains. They cannot be changed. Just because you don't like them, just because you don't understand them, just because you don't want to see that murderer or that pedophile or that armed robber make it into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's why Christ is our judge. If we judged each other, none of us would be in the kingdom of heaven. Not one. And the promises to Abraham would all fail. His descendants could never be like the stars or the sand of the sea if we start eliminating sinners by our own judgment. That's the way it is. Which part of all don't you get? I'm going to read John chapter 15 because I'm going to show that this man who has claimed these things is a total fool. He doesn't know a damn thing about the Bible. He's an actor. He doesn't even act in his own name. He uses a stage name and poses as an actor and makes believing those something about the Bible. Here's John chapter 15. 
This clown cited this to somehow disprove Paul and Isaiah, right? I am the true vine, and my father is the planter. Each branch in me not bearing fruit, he takes it, and each bearing fruit, he cleanses it, in order that it would bear more fruit. If you you are already clean through the word which I have spoken to you, you abide in me, and I in you. Just as the branch is not able to bear fruit by itself, unless it should abide on the vine, Thusly, neither do you unless you would abide with me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who is abiding in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you are not able to do anything. If one should not abide in me, he shall be cast outside like a branch that is withered, and they gather and they cast them into the fire and it burns. If you abide in me and my word should abide in you, whatever you should desire you may ask and it shall come to you. In this my father is honored in me, and this my father is honored that you would bear much fruit and you would be my students. Just as my father has loved me, I have also loved you. You abide in my love. If you will keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, just as I have kept the commandments of my father, and I abide in his love. Well, this clown wants to define abide as somebody who doesn't commit any sin. But we all sin every single one of us. And James the Apostle, as I demonstrated over the last few Friday night programs, has told us that if you are guilty of one point in the law, you are liable to the entire law. And there's not one man walking today who can say, I've never violated the law. As John the Apostle says, if you say that you're without sin, You make God a liar, and his word is not in you. 1 John 1.10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. There you go. That's what you are. One John 2.1, because we all sin, my little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not, and if any man sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, the same John that wrote the gospel wrote that epistle. And therefore, it is full. And this will be proven that this clown interpreting the abiding of Christ as being someone who does not sin. is perverting the things that Christ said in John chapter 15. Because we all sin, and we have an advocate in Christ. One John chapter three, verse seven. Children, let no one deceive you. He who is bringing about justice is just, even as he, meaning God, is just. He who is creating error is from of the false accuser, or the devil, since the devil errs from the beginning. For this the Son of God has been made manifest, in order that he would do away with the works of the false accuser. Each who has been born from of Yahweh 
does not create wrongdoing because his seed abides in him and he is not able to do wrong because from of Yahweh he has been born. The first discourse on the tree of life is in Genesis chapter 3. I think it's 323. I never get that one right. It might be 322. Where it says, unless the man reach forth his hand and grasp the tree of life and live forever. Well, guess what that was a response to? That was a response to the first sin in the garden. The first sin in the garden was race mixing. And the warning because of the race mixing, unless the man reach forth and grasp the tree of life and live forever. Christ is the tree of life. He is the vine and we are the branches. If our seed abides in us, we cannot sin because sin will not be imputed to us. The entire struggle of Paul's ministry was explaining that, that we are forgiven of all of our sins, but that that should make us want to uphold the law, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 3. Should we sin more because we have found grace? God forbid. Rather, we uphold the law. We establish the law because we have found grace. If our seed abides in us, we cannot sin. As John, the same John that wrote three, that, that wrote John 15, that recorded those words of Christ, wrote 1 John chapter 3. If our seed abides in us, we cannot sin. Let's read I am the vine again. Let's read John 15 again with that racial understanding. I am the true vine, the tree of life. In other words, unless the man stays with his own race and lives forever. I am the true vine, and my father is the planter. Yahweh planted the vine of Adam. Each branch in me not bearing fruit, he takes it, and each bearing fruit, he cleanses it in order that it would bear more fruit. Esau didn't bear fruit. He went and race mixed with Canaanites. The descendants of Esau, for that reason, they're going to be gathered and thrown in the fire. You are already clean through the word which I have spoken to you. The word which he spoke to us was that he came to remove the sins of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to cleanse their sins when he died on the cross. We're already clean through that promise which he gave to us all the way back in Jeremiah. You abide in me and I in you, just as the branch is not able to bear fruit by itself unless it should abide on the vine. If we don't stay with our own race, we don't bear fruit. Thusly, Neither do you unless you would abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who is abiding in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you are not able to do anything. If one should abide in me, I'm sorry, if one should not abide in me, he shall be cast outside like a branch that is withered and they gather just like the tares. You want to have race mixed children? You want to reject Christ? and go off with the Jews, 
Do you want to reject Christ and cater or, or, or make yourself subservient to the Jewish ideal in the world? Then you will be a race mixer. Because it's the Jew who's responsible for our nations being overrun and race mixed. That's what's going on in the world today. That's the way it's always been. Wherever you see race mixing, scratch the surface and you'll find the Jews. You want to reject Christ and not abide in him, you'll be cast outside like a branch that is withered. And they gather and they cast him into the fire and it burns. If you abide in me and my words, should abide in you, whatever you should desire you may ask, and it shall come to you. In this my Father is honored that you would bear much fruit and you would be my students. Christ is talking to Judeans, men who were raised in Judaism in the first century. The people of Judea had a choice. They could follow Christ out of Judaism and they would be preserved. Or they could reject Christ and cling to the Jews, and they would become mixed with the seed of Canaan and Esau. And in that case, they would be burned up like the tares. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. You abide in my love. If you will keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Just as I have kept the commandments of my Father and I abide in his love. If those first century Judeans followed Christ and kept his commandments, they would separate themselves from the Edomite Jews who were going to be destroyed, who were going to be taken off into all nations to become a curse and a reproach and eventually be cast into the lake of fire. But no Israelite, no Israelite will be cast into the lake of fire. All Israel. shall be saved. Which part of all don't you get? If your seed is in you, if you are a true child of Jacob, you cannot sin. As Paul says, blessed is the man whose sin will not be reckoned. Well, that promise goes out to all the children of Israel in Christ. The children of Israel cannot sin, meaning that Yahweh will not impute their sin to them because he has cleansed them of all their sin. There is no exception. It is the enemies of God who are ultimately held responsible for the sin in this world, and they shall all be destroyed for it. The children of Yahweh cannot sin because their seed is in them. They are pure Adamic people with the implanted spirit of God. They are not broken cisterns, if indeed they are pure. This message is a racial message. It is not a personal message. 
It is also seen in the words of the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Philippians in chapter 2. And I must warn that all mainstream translations butcher this translation. They butcher this passage because they can't understand it, because they don't understand the concept of race in Scripture. They pervert the meanings of all words which have anything to do with race. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not while in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, with fear and trembling, you achieve your own deliverance because we submit ourselves to Christ. For it is Yahweh who is operating in you, both to desire and to work for that approval. Do all things apart from murmuring and disputing, that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, you would stay away from the Jews. Blameless children of Yahweh in the midst of a race crooked and perverted, among whom you appear as luminaries in a society, upholding the word of life for a boast with me in the day of Christ, that not in vain have I run, nor in vain have I labored. So we do not condemn our brethren Yes, we condemn the sinner. No doubt we condemn the sin. If the brother is not repentant, we have to put him out of our company. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We don't allow our brethren who are unrepentant to run roughshod over us. When your brother sees his maker, he will repent. There is no doubt. The word of God does not fail. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. For another foundation, no one is able to place besides that which is established, which is Yahshua Christ. Now, if anyone builds upon that foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw, the work of each will become evident. Indeed, the day will disclose it. Because in fire it is revealed, and the quality of of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize the trials of this life. If the work of anyone who is built remains, he shall receive a reward. And Paul is talking about Israel, right? If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be preserved, although consequently through fire. So many of our brethren may awaken and have no reward. But they themselves, they will be preserved. Will the clowns of November ever repent wishing evil against the children of Israel, whom Yahweh has cleansed? And on the other hand, these same clowns insist that Negroes and bastards shall see the kingdom of heaven. And they've said that explicitly. They're Catholics. They are the real race traitors. They bear the leaven of the Pharisees. When I, when I um, did my, my, my commentaries here on the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, it was established that part of the leaven of the Pharisees was the idea 
that anybody could become a proselyte of justice and be baptized and converted, and that good people, good people would go to heaven, and bad people who had bad behavior would suffer fire in hell. That is Catholic. That's the leaven of the Pharisees that the Catholic Church later adopted. And it's a total disgrace that any so-called Christian identity pastor should still bear that leaven. But they do. It's an absolute disgrace that anybody who claims to be conscious of the racial nature of the covenants of God could bear that leaven of the Pharisees. It's disgraceful. This man isn't Christian identity, and in fact, there's a couple of them, and they're all clowns. Which part of all don't they understand? They don't want to understand it because they have an agenda. Their agenda is to throw Israelites into the lake of fire and convince us that niggers can go into the kingdom of heaven. That's their agenda. It's a Catholic agenda. It's a Jewish agenda. That's exactly what it is. Yahweh said he would save all Israel without exception. There are no exceptions. Who are we to judge another man's servant? We don't condemn our brethren because God's not going to condemn them. We work to correct them. I'm open to discussion on any of these issues. It amazes me that there are people in Christian identity who want to invent their own Bible. They're no better than Catholics. It's a damn shame. And it makes me wonder what the sort of people are who are actually listening to them. But they have some listeners. There's no doubt. Matt, if you have anything to say, this is the time to say it. Hello, Matt. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm not too I hope I can cool. I mean, I could vociferate on it till I'm blue in the face. If they don't understand all Israel, they're never going to understand the rest of it. Oh, absolutely not. You know, and, and like you said, if, uh, you know, when you, you take any element out of all Israel is safe, all you're doing is is ending up with um with universalism, plain and simple. You know the the concept of of uh, if you're you know if you're good you go to heaven and you're you're bad you go to hell. That's all about individualism. You're, that's you're the left in the Pharisees. Josephus explains it. Right. You know any anything beyond that you're negating everything. That Bible is this to discuss and come across with in various parables and also, I mean I would take a couple you know couple hundred a thousand pages to explain simply oh well you know if you're good you're going to go to heaven if you're bad you're going to get to hell.
Well, everything, any, it does lead to universalism. They are universalists. They deny the title, but that is what they are. And yes, Matt, your mic's breaking up a little now. That they deny the title of universalist. They insist that they're not universalists. They take offense to, be labeled, to being labeled universalists, but they profess universalist doctrines. You could call a wolf a sheep all day. If it's a wolf, it can't be a sheep. You know, I, I'd like to, uh, to add the, you know, the, this concept of exterminationism that, that they're putting out there to label you in such a wonderful Jew fashion um, and, and anyone who, you know, believes your exterminationist doctrine, like, like, you know, like it's something you made up. Um, you know, quite honestly, as far as I'm concerned, there's, there is a reason that it has to, that Yahweh has to be that extreme. And it's because of idiots like them. How else is he going to prove them wrong in the end but to absolutely eliminate his enemies, plain and simple. Well, well, Obadiah one sixteen, right? All nations that that have gathered themselves against the children of Israel shall be made as if they were not. Right. So uh, you know, we can we can say to these clowns, you know, if you want to. Uh, you know, discuss how horrible this concept of exterminationism is, well, it's it's simply, you know, it's exactly what Scripture says. And, uh, you know, and Yahweh is going to be doing it because of idiots like you who don't believe that what he says he is going to do. Well, well, it's incredible how one little error can lead to a world of trouble, and 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 that you know, yeah, you know, one little error, as James says, sets um that there should not be many teachers because the smallest error, the smallest false profession, creates a world of iniquity. Well, absolutely, and the fact that you know this 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 fundamental teaching that is foundation for the understanding of the Bible that is Israelite identity, exactly as you have explained it, that that message has to be repeated over and over and over. Because if the message is not repeated verbatim, it gets lost in translation. That one piece of movement gets dropped into that lump and then it just it's it's toast from there, no matter how you shake the stick at it. Because that little bit of leaven, anything, anything you take away from that it's is going to be infected. Oh, Matt, you're breaking up a little again. That must be my phone. Well, you're on a cell phone. Yeah. I don't know. If anybody wants to call in, I'm going to be here at least a few more minutes. If anybody else wants to call in and and, and have any questions or comments, you're welcome to do it.
it's amazing to me that the people that that, that um, should be calling in, that the, the the ones that always snivel in the corner and 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 backbite, that they never they're never here to call in, right? Right. Well, they you know they're uh, they're not about scholarship. Has no, they're only them. That they're only scoffers. That's all they are. Did you did you see the the uh, the question there, Bill? South Bend has a has a question. Well, well, you know we we all have. That there's that there's a clear message of diverse rewards, and we seek that reward. Many of us are going, as Daniel chapter twelve says, many of the children of Israel are going to awaken to everlasting joy, and many of them are going to awaken to everlasting reproach, as Paul says, and I just quoted in one Corinthians. Many of us, our works will be burned into fire and we will have a reward, and others, their works will be burned into fire and they won't have a reward. But they themselves will be preserved. That's the gospel. That's the word of Scripture. That's the promise. We want to do good for our brother and do good for our race so that we have a reward if we do poorly with our brethren and we don't do anything for our race, then we don't have a reward, but we'll be there. We'll be along for the ride. That's the promise. Because all Israel will be saved. Some of them aren't going to like it, but that's the way it is. That's the promise of Scripture. That's consistent with all the promises of Jeremiah. That's consistent with Daniel. That's consistent with what Paul says. That's consistent with what Christ said in the Revelation. Right. There will be a judgment, but there is a judgment for all of Israel, and that's it. The, the, only, ju- the only judgment that there is for, for anything or anyone else is the lake of fire, if you are not of young. Right. Matt, see who um, North and Central Kentucky is, right? Am I on? Hello. Am I on? There's a yeah. familiar voice. How you doing, Bill? Hello. How you doing? Uh, I like your subject this evening. It's very thought-provoking. And uh, I know some people struggle with this idea Um uh, how, oh, like the scripture, every knee shall bow. Uh, that's hard for some people to rectify in their minds because there's some really heinous and, and evil deeds done by uh, people that purport to be white. And uh, they think that's a reflection on God. How could God forgive uh, such crimes? And the thought occurred to me as I was listening to you tonight that 
this could be one aspect of, of the terrors. Uh, and you mentioned how God knows each and every soul that a person may not, some, they may have something in their wood pile that would qualify them as a terror and would then not reflect so badly upon uh, God uh, giving these sorts of people a free pass, such as well, well, that's right. Well, well, that's right. A lot of them are probably tares, but also a lot of them are good people who have been polluted by tares. A, a lot of people that grow up to be sexual deviants were molested when they were children. Yes, I've heard that. And, and, and that, they grow up thinking that that's normal and, and lusting that perversity. And, and I know people that were molested as children, that they were good kids, they were seemingly good kids, and they grew up to be sexual deviants, and you wonder why, and you'll find out that they were molested, they were, they were violated, they were perverted, their minds were corrupted as children. And, and that's a trial too, right? I, I mean, to me, that's a trial. And, and that's, you know, it's not right. Yeah, we want to kill them. God has mercy on them, as long as they are children of Israel, as long as they are of the Adamic race. I've heard the same thing with uh, generational uh, Satanist, that it, it runs in the family. And, uh, and they get them at a very early age, uh, inculcating in them uh, a worship of Satan and, and all that goes along with that. Well, well, absolutely. But they also, get, you know, they get us at a very early age, right? I mean, that they, they molest white kids every chance they could get. And, and that corrupts people of our race. Some of our people can, can withstand that and, and bury those, those memories and, and still be able to live apparently normal lives. But others, it affects adversely, and they grow up to be homosexuals and perverts and other sorts of deviants. And, and that's not because they themselves may have done anything bad. It's because they were corrupted at a young age and, and they didn't, you know, overcome that. And, and they failed to, um, you know, to, to stand up to it. And, and it, they've let that corruption run the rest of their lives. And I've known people like that. Now, there's another um, uh, thing is been discussed in identity for years about the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. How do, how do you reckon that into this discussion? I believe that that's the promotion of race mixing. That's my personal opinion. We really don't, we're not told flat out what it is, but I believe that it is the promotion and the encouragement of race mixing is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That the imagining that God is going to accept people who are not part of his holy covenant. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the people that are ultimately responsible for that are the enemies of God. That, that's the way I see that. So is that an exception to the rule or is that a, a racial distinction, do you think? Well, well, I believe it's a racial distinction because the tares are always blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That, that's how they act. They do it naturally. 
that they encourage race mixing naturally. They insist on it. Yeah, that was my so original I don't rule. I think it's difficult for us to understand. That was my original I, thought that um, uh, race explains so much as as to trying to reconcile um, all of these matters. That um, those people who have remained racially pure still have the propensity to do, to do good, but if there's some taint in in their DNA, which God has uh, programmed in how they should live their lives, how they're programmed, uh, if it's tainted in any way, even if it goes back ten generations, then that would explain how they can't live a Christian life. Well, well, right, absolutely. The bastard is always the enemy of of the true-born son. That's the way it is. And that does it. it um, what we all, as individuals, every child of Adam, the Adamic man has two natures. They only have one nature, the fleshly nature. That's all they have. Because they're bastards. They're broken cisterns. They can't hold the spirit of God. And it proves, history proves it over and over and over again. Even when they try to do right, they screw up. And when they apparently do something right, they usually only do something right out of self-promotion, out of self-aggrandizement. They do it for all the wrong reasons. We have the fleshly nature which can lead us to do evil when we give in to our fleshly desires. Paul talked about that at great length, that that's the struggle, that the Spirit of God in us is never in agreement with the fleshly nature that leads us to sin. That's the nature of man. We have hormones. The hormones are required. If we didn't have certain hormones, we would never find a woman and and multiply. But those hormones, when we don't control them, they get us into trouble. That's our fleshly nature. But we have the spirit of God where when we overcome our fleshly nature, we can build great societies and do wonderful things. And we generally, our race is very amenable to living by the rule of law, having respect for our fellow men, and not violating his household, his bed, and and all of the things that matter that are necessary to build the wonderful societies that we've been able to build. Where on the other hand, the perverted and corrupt Edomite, Canaanite Jew has always infiltrated and perverted good societies. Wherever they go, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Wherever we go and we're left alone, it's the Garden of Eden. Well, I think that's where God's given us a tool that uh, some people have difficulty discerning the Spirit, but that says you'll know them by their fruits. Well, absolutely. And, and we can't always discern whether a brother or, or an apparent brother is truly a brother until those fruits come out. And, and we it have takes to, years. <laughs> sometimes it does take years, right? But we have to give apparently white people because we can't tell. You know, John wrote in his gospel that Christ did not need the testimony of any man 
because he knew what was in men. He could look at a man and, and know whether he was a wheat or a tear. We, being fallible men, cannot always tell. And, and I give a lot of people the benefit of the doubt that I don't want to, but I know that scripturally I have to, that it's required of me to give them the benefit of the doubt until I know them by their fruits. Sure. I agree. And there are people that I have curb that have apparently white people that I should have kicked to the curb earlier and didn't because I had to let their fruits manifest. And there are apparently white people that I may have kicked to the curb and didn't who turned out to be good and upright people. Well, it sounds like somebody else wants to talk, so I'll get off the hook here. It was good talking with you, Bill. Well, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. I was simply simply going to say that um, uh, the the understanding of that, uh, the unpardonable sin, uh, I think it, it kind of gets convoluted in that that sin being unpardonable is being to to whoever is is necessarily perpetrating that rape mix or whatever. I think it's it's unpardonable because there are there is it is the termination of the seed line period. It, there's nothing, nothing afterwards that uh, you know is is able to be part. Well, well, right. That's why Esau found no room for repentance. Esau, even though he himself was was a you know a pure Adamite, Esau found no room for repentance concerning the inheritance because he had no valid offspring to pass it to. It couldn't go to him. I like to contrast him to Judah, who was also a total screw-up and a race mixer. But Yahweh used Tamar to produce a valid tribe of Judah, which we would not have had if it were left up to Judah, which again shows the power of the promises of God, that Judah was going to have valid offspring worthy of the promises, whether Judah himself cooperated or not. Yahweh used Judah's incontinence to create a tribe of Judah. Matt, this is the burying on the line. I don't know who that is. You might want to venture to let them talk. I don't know. I've seen him here before. Uh, hey, it's Robert the Berean. Oh, what's up, Robert? I didn't know that was uh, your handle. Yeah, it's another name. Thanks for letting me on, but I, I don't have any questions. Okay, Robert. Thanks for um for listening. Thanks for the show. Oh, thank you. Okay, Matt, we could wrap this up. We we've said enough and, and um thank you everybody for being here tonight and for listening and praise Yahweh. 
I'll be here Friday night. I still don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to probably one of the minor prophets. I, I might just pick one out of the hat, right? And, and um, that'll be next Friday's program. And, and next Saturday's program will also be announced later. I, I think I might do my um, seed of inheritance papers next Saturday and discuss them. Thank you, everybody. And, and um, praise Yahweh. And, and good night.